Good evening, friends, fellow Dhamma-farers, O children of the Noble Ones, most excellent medium-sized beings. I think most of you have heard uh, the names of Sariputta and Mahamogalana. Many of you have. Uh, they were uh, two of the Buddha's um, uh, most senior students, his chief disciples, described as his chief disciples. And they had been uh, friends for a long, long time before they uh, undertook the uh, life under the, the Buddha's guidance in, the, in wearing the robes of that order. Um, Sariputta's name, before he ordained, before he became uh, a mendicant, alms mendicant uh, under the Buddha, was Upatissa, and Mogalana was Kolita. And they had been friends since they were uh, quite young, and, and they, were, uh, they both became very um, sincere seekers. And they uh, studied under different teachers, and um, they made a promise to one another that if either one of them were to meet uh, a teacher, a teaching that led to uh, the deepest understanding, that led to uh, the uh, liberation of, final liberation of mind and heart, to the realization of Nibbana, that they would inform the other, they would seek them out wherever they might be and let them know, let the other one know. And so uh, Upatissa, who would become Sariputta later, was uh, in Rajagaha, uh, modern day Rajgir is the name now of that place. And uh, he, had, he was living there. I think they were both living in that area and their teacher Sanjaya was based there. And he saw uh, one of the first five disciples of the Buddha, Venerable Asaji, uh, who was on going an alms round. I have a particular uh, connection, fondness for Venerable Asaji. When I, I spent time living in the robes and when I ordained, I was given that name. He was the youngest of the five. And, uh, and so Upatissa saw him going on alms round and he was very struck by uh, his look. This very dignified, serene, calm presence and his appearance there. In his own words, he said, never before have I seen one such as this. And he, he thought, well, he's on alms round. This is not the time to disturb him, but I, I'll, he followed him. And at a certain point when he decided it was appropriate, he, he went up to him, he approached him, and he, he said, please tell me who is your teacher and what is his teaching? And Asaji said, well, my, my teacher is, is the Buddha and he's, he's nearby, you should go, go to him. He was reluctant to, to give any teachings. And uh, Upatissa said, oh, just tell me a little something. I'll get it. You know, he was, 
he wanted he wanted it right away. <laughs> and so uh, Asaji uttered uh, these lines. I'll say them in Pali. And uh, my pronunciation's okay. Ye dhamma hetupa bhava, te sang hetum tatagato aha, te sancha yo nirodo, ewam wadi mahasamano. That's the teaching he gave. Very short. The Tathagata has declared the cause and also the cessation of all phenomena which arise from a cause. This is the doctrine held by the great Samana. Samana is a, a great seeker, great teacher. And it's said that Upatissa realized uh, stream entry, first stage of enlightenment, when Asaji was just halfway through the verse. <laughs> so he was ready to hear that. <laughs> and so he sought out uh, Kolita and told him that, well, when Kolita saw him, he said, friend, you must have uh, realized something here. He could see in his appearance. There's a, a very, what I find very charming uh, postscript to this story. It's said that later on, a long time after Sariputta had become uh, a monk, you could say, under the Buddha and was living uh, that life and uh, traveling around teaching and uh, spending time in various places, that monks, uh, some monks saw him uh, bowing in different directions Apparently there was a practice of bowing to the, the, all the directions and some elaborate rituals that um, they thought were not appropriate, you know, it was from some, they thought, well, he's, he's not doing what he should be doing here. And they went to see the Buddha. And, um, and the Buddha said, no, he is bowing at these times in the direction of his first teacher. If he knew where the Venerable Asaji was uh, abiding, he would bow in that direction in the mornings. And it's said that he also slept with his head in that direction uh, to pay respect and uh, uh, show homage and respect to uh, the one who had been his first teacher. So this reflection on this teaching of cause and effect, very powerful in the case of uh, Sariputta, Upatissa, because of this, this arises. When this ceases, this ceases. It goes to the very heart of the teachings in a very profound way, this teaching on causation, on cause and effect, pointing to directly to the conditioned nature of uh, life, of experience. It actually leads us to a direct and practical understanding of the teachings of anatta, of not-self. This understanding that things unfold in this flow of conditions, causes, and the, the results of those causes, this fruition, this flow, cause and effect, cause and effect. And it's also key to understanding the Buddha's teachings on kamma, or karma. Kamma is, sen, is Pali, karma is Sanskrit. And I'll 
I'll use this word, uh, these two words interchangeably when I speak about this subject tonight. And their teachings and reflections on the subject of kamma throughout the discourses found very often understanding, having a clear understanding of this teaching is uh, said to be one aspect of wise, wise or right view. It's a subject that we don't talk about all that much. And sometimes someone gives a talk on the subject. It's a subject that leads to uh, a lot of questions, a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstanding. I think this relates at least in part to the fact that the word karma is, is become part of the everyday uh, vernacular, the everyday speech, at least uh, in some places. You know, it's all over the place. It's on bumper stickers. My karma just ran over your dogma. <laughs> And we make references or we hear references to, oh, it's just my karma or bad karma or instant karma's gonna get you. All these different ways that we might hear it and I may use it even. And, and there's some connection to what this teaching points to. It's not completely uh, without any connection, but it's, it's often a, it tends to reinforce a, a simplified, a superficial understanding, an oversimplification. Leads to a lot of, um, a lot of uh, confusion and sometimes suffering. And the subject of karma is very directly related to the subject of rebirth. Another topic that leads to a lot of questions, confusion for people. And these teachings, in a way, are very, uh, are inseparable. They're woven together. And questions arise. Uh, people ask these all the time. Do I have to believe in rebirth? I don't believe in it. Am I supposed to believe in it? If there's no self, then who gets reborn? If there is rebirth. Who experiences the fruits of past actions? Is the suffering that I or someone else experiences the result of something I did in the past, in some past life? Is it somehow my fault? These kinds of of questions come up in the mind sometimes as though it's almost like karma functions like fate you know, this force that emerges out of the past that we're somehow responsible for and powerless to do anything about. And the whole subject can bring up subject of cause and effect and karma and all how this works, brings up questions around free will, often comes up in people's minds they come to these teachings. Is there even any such thing as free will? There's no self. Who's deciding anything? What's going on here? If everything is just a flow of causes, just a causal flow, where is there any, any choice in that? 
I think we need to be really careful not to use the teachings on karma, kamma, as if they somehow could function as a, as a reflective device, a rear view mirror that would let us account for our own or someone's current life circumstances. And so we could address illness or um, <coughs> poverty or anything someone's conditions, saying, oh, it's just, it's just their karma. I think this is a very um, simplistic, misguided interpretation of this teaching that only causes harm and adds to the suffering in the world. And I think it's a real mistake to try to use this teaching in this way. I don't think the Buddha would ever have intended it to be used in this way. But what it can do and where it is actually useful is as an aid to help us um, kind of focus on and, um, and make choices in terms of how we respond to the present. A focal point for choices we make in response to what's happening right now. That's where it has value. So in in exploring, investigating this, this subject, it's um, really helpful to bear in mind that this functioning of cause and effect um, is very, is in the world, in our lives, is vast and very complex. You could say that we live, we swim in an ocean of cause and effect. A network of causal threads or ripples, like a, like a vast web all interconnected. And these ripples, these um, threads, they're constantly shifting, vibrating, rebounding, influencing, affecting one another. And the actions that we make are part of that equation. One of those threads, one of those ripples. I read an article on the subject of of karma by Gil Fronsdahl, and he had this great image I'll use uh, here. I've maybe mentioned it to some of you in meetings. If you imagine a still pool or a pond, like Gaston Pond on a very still day, you can see the reflection of everything, the sky, the trees, totally calm, like a mirror. And you toss a pebble in there and you'll get a series of ripples. And then you toss another one. And then you toss another one. And each time one lands, there's another series of ripples and they bounce off the previous sets of ripples and you get a very complex pattern of the waves bouncing off one another and you keep tossing those pebbles in. And if you can imagine that that's been happening since the beginning of beginningless time, (laughs) those pebbles have been tossed in there. The pattern of those wave ripples, the pattern would become exceedingly complex. And to try to find the original one or two, (laughs) very, very difficult. You'd have to, to account for the way this moment right now, as it has come to be, to account for that, you would have to trace every one of those ripples back farther than far. This is considered to be 
one of the great imponderables. And if you think about it too much, your head will explode (laughs) and you will go mad and experience vexation. So I don't want to hear any poppings (laughs) from any corners of the hall. (laughs) So you could say that when the Buddha looked at this complexity of this uh, ocean of cause and effect, he chose to focus on a particular aspect of it, and that's the area of intentional actions. We've spoken about intention, the Pali word chetana, and the different ways that we can see intention. And Sally gave a whole talk on on the subject. Uh, There's a couple of key points I'd like to uh, touch back on because it's essential uh, for our understanding when talking about thinking about exploring the subject of karma. The first of these is that all actions, whether speech, actions of the body, all actions have their origin in the mind. And this leads us to the literal meaning of the word karma, which is action. We often, there's kama, karma, or kama, vipaka, is the fruit of the action. Karma just means action. And the Buddha point at the way that intention and action are uh, interconnected and uh, are at the root of the understanding of, of the process of the law of kama. Intention, I tell you, is kama. Intending one does kama. One acts by way of body, speech, and mind. And I think uh, more than one of us, I, I'm sure Sally mentioned that this this mental factor of chetana, which we translate as uh, intention, is um, is neutral. It's like just energy. It's very simple. We experience it in our direct sensing as this about to, this gathering that precedes an action might notice it before reaching for something, before taking a step, before opening the eyes. It's just like electricity. Very neutral. But there are all these other mental factors which can arise and you could say flavor or inform this neutral energetic impulse to do, of intention, of chetana, which we could uh, speak of, I'll use the word motivation, the motivational energy that accompanies that, that informs it. And so the intention, the pure uh, energetic chetana can be um, accompanied by, arise from, be informed by uh, greed or Uh, renunciation, relinquishment, by ill will or love, by delusion or wisdom and so forth, all kinds of things. And this motivation is key in understanding how how karma functions. So um, by and large, the the karmic weight of, um, of an action is not found within the action but is tied to the motivation there. 
So the same action uh, might be born of very different motivations. So for example, um, someone could gather flammable materials together and, and, and bring them in, in a place and, and use uh, matches to start a fire. In one case, they could be an arsonist who's been hired to burn down a building. In another case, they could be someone who's uh, building a fire in order to cook some food to, fill, to feed their family or themselves. Or someone could take uh, a big uh, heavy axe and use it to break down a door or a crowbar to pry a door open. And they might be breaking in to rob a place or they might be someone who's um, a rescue worker who's breaking down a door in a burning building to try to help someone get out. So the action could look the same. Very, very different motivations that are, are informing, giving birth to, accompanying the, just the intention to do in those cases. Now, as Sally said, this doesn't mean that actions born of wholesome intentions don't, uh, might not have a very um, negative impact. The impact of actions is, is uh, not always going to follow on just because the, the intention, the motivation is wholesome. And so this doesn't mean there's not responsibility for the impact. And then there's the response then to, to that, where the arena of responsibility is. So we have to be careful that um, how we hold that. Just because our intention is good doesn't mean that we, we don't see the impact of things and follow on from there. But still, when we look around the world and we see all of the avoidable suffering there, and there's a lot of it, it's so poignant these days, and we hear about it so much, all of the wars and the violence and the struggle the injustice, what's happening there? All of these uh, situations have their roots in mind states and the actions that have followed on from those mind states. They all come down to that. So this is not a small thing actions born of, un, of unwholesome mind states, of actions born of greed, hatred, fear, confusion, lead to these, these suffering situations in the world. They don't just happen. If we look, we can find the seeds of war and of peace right in our own mind and heart, right there. And the Buddha spoke to this very directly in this famous verse from the Dhammapada. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is their chief. They are all mind made. If with an impure mind one speaks or acts, suffering follows like the wheel of the cart follows the foot of the ox. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is their chief. They are all mind made. If with a pure mind one speaks or acts, happiness follows like one's never departing shadow. 
I think these are the first uh, lines. Aren't these the first verses in the Dhammapada? Andrea, you remember? Yeah. The Buddha begins that, that collection of teachings with these words. I think maybe one of my colleagues read them already in a talk. But they're powerful. Very direct, simple teaching there. And so for our own happiness, for happiness in the world, an understanding of the way this functions is very powerful. Informs our lives very directly. So we take responsibility for our actions, for the motivations that we choose to follow. And mindfulness gives us a chance to recognize these energies right in the moment of their arising. And, that's, and we have the possibility of a choice. You know, and there's things that happen that are the result of actions that we do, but there's not a direct intention. But there's an impact. So we're taking a walk and it's this time of year and those uh, nice fuzzy caterpillars are out. I move them off the road because they don't understand about cars. They're like walking pipe cleaners. So the leaves have blown over and, and one of them is covered by a leaf and, uh, and you, you're walking along and, um, and you step on the leaf and, and the poor caterpillar is under there and, and through no intention uh, of your, on your part, the caterpillar meets its demise. And these things happen sometimes. We didn't see it. Accidents like this can happen. So there's no intention to cause harm, but harm was caused. So there is an impact. There's a causal flow related to it that could go in so many directions. It could, it could flow on and, you know, someone's following behind you, walking along behind you, and the leaf is blown away, and they see the, the caterpillar, and they don't know what it is, and they jump aside because they don't want to step on it, and they slip and fall. They injure their leg. It's broken. You hear them call out because... They, they scream in pain, you run back to help, go to the rescue, help them get to the hospital, you accompany them, make this real connection on the way, fall in love. <laughs> on the way back from the hospital, you stop, you say, oh, let's just buy one lottery ticket. It's the winning ticket, <laughs> happily ever after. <laughs> so there's this, this flow of causality there. It winds up at a very different place than it began. And this, the poor caterpillar, its demise is part of this causal flow. It's like uh, these ripples in my pond image. And they ripple off and they go off in all kinds of directions. And so the unfolding of of karma, our actions, the fruits of them, our intentional actions and the fruits of them is part of this. And there's all kinds of other factors. And just as a single seed, you plant a seed, there's a potential there to bring about a flowering plant or a huge tree. These acorns, you plant an acorn, look how huge the oak trees are. How many acorns 
in a good year, one of those trees will produce. And each of those can produce a whole one, one seed. How many over time? Countless. Couldn't count them up. Intention in the same way, the potential to bring about a multitude of fruits over time, unfolding, flowing out from an action. And I think that one reason the Buddha chose to focus on intentional actions is because a wise understanding of how this functions is, um, it's empowering and liberating for us. Because we're encouraged to look at and take responsibility for this chain of cause and effect. Take responsibility, look and see what are the motivations that inform our actions, that accompany our intentions. And there's this understanding that intentions, intentional actions born of or accompanied by, colored by, informed by um, wholesome motivations tend to yield wholesome, beneficial, pleasant results unwholesome ones, suffering, stress, and difficulty. And so we make choices that directly impact our life. And, and so we can add to this process of the, out, of the flowing on of cause and effect. And so from what we could think of as, perhaps we could see it as a Buddhist understanding, karma has, um, acts in, in a way you could imagine as multiple feedback loops. So by this I mean the present moment is shaped by past actions and by present actions. Present actions shape the future and also the present. And most important is that our, our present actions are, do not need to be somehow predetermined by our past actions. We have a choice how we respond and mindfulness is what gives us this choice. I read a little bit from the teacher Tanisaro Bhikkhu Tanjaf. He puts it this way. In other words, there is free will, although its range is somewhat dictated by the past. The nature of this freedom is symbolized in an image used by the early Buddhists, an image of flowing water. Sometimes the flow from the past is so strong that little can be done except to stand fast. To maintain balance, you could say, in the, fa- in, in the rush of that flow. But there are also times when the flow is gentle enough to be diverted in almost any direction. Instead of promoting resigned powerlessness, the Buddhist notion of karma focuses on the liberating potential of what the mind is doing with every moment. Who you are, what you come from, is not anywhere near as important as the mind's motives for what it is doing right now. A while, a few years ago, I was, I was talking on this subject, and um, and a, f- a couple of friends of mine were there and uh, listening to the talk and. And I kind of asked them what they thought, how'd it go, you know. And they said, well, one of them said, I think you need to jazz it up a little bit. And so I'm going to be revealing something here that has the potential to make somebody to be like someone's retirement plan. So 
I want you to hold this with great care. And I get 10% if you really run with it. <laughs> so I came up with an, an acronym. I think it's an acronym. Anyway, karma means, <laughs> is this an acronym? Kind actions really matter a lot. <laughs> yes. Somebody's gonna really take this far. I can, it's, you're out there somewhere. So I'm, this is my gift, but I do want my percentage. I'm getting old and I need a retirement plan here. <clears throat> so we can't, as I said, the head exploding problem with fathoming the unfolding of cause and effect, <laughs> that, that over the complexity of it is just too much. But how we respond in each moment to life's changes is really um, kind of the, the heart of, of the practice in many ways. It's when we could say this is where uh, spiritual life really happens. It's in our response to the, to the moment. Our uh, friend and colleague, Guy Armstrong, I think he, he said, he called Karma, the science of happiness. I think that's where I heard that. And I think it's, uh, it's a, I like that description of karma as the science of happiness. I think it's an apt description because if we understand the workings of karma, then we discover that it, it is a science of happiness, a recipe for happiness. Happiness uh, right now, human happiness in this life, what we might think of as heavenly happiness and the, the happiness of liberation ultimately. So although this uh, unfolding of causal, the causal flow of cause and effect is uh, this dynamic and complex process with new cause and as an effects constantly added, new pebbles are tossed in and constantly, but there are natural laws that govern how things unfold in terms of the understanding of the law of karma, which we can see as a reflection of the law of nature, which I think is a beautiful um, uh, connection there. Since from my perspective, not mine alone, all we're doing in this practice is studying nature. We're learning about the nature of things and the laws of nature uh, apply here in the very direct way. And so I've been using uh, this image of a seed and, and it's useful in des describing this. If we plant a certain kind of seed, we'll get a certain kind of plant. If we plant daisy seed, we will get daisies. We're not gonna get sunflowers. That's just the nature of things. The great thing about this in terms of understanding karma, karma is that we can choose the seeds we want to plant to a great extent. We can plant the seeds of our future happiness or our future suffering, and we have that choice. It's up to us. And, and we have to be careful that we don't oversimplify the process. And um, there's not some kind of one-to-one -one ratio. Of if, it doesn't mean that if we're careful and, and really try our best to um, understand and the motivations that are arising in the mind and follow only wholesome ones, 
that nothing bad is going to ever happen. It's not, it's too complicated for it to be uh, simplified down in that way. Teachings on karma point to the way that our actions yield results and have this lawful bearing of fruit um, within a single life and also from one life to the next. And, and this brings up the idea, the subject of rebirth, which may or may not be meaningful to any one of us. But we don't have to believe in rebirth or have any sense of the reality of that to understand the workings of karma. And we can sense how this process unfolds in our lives moment by moment. And today someone was um, describing how quickly they could go from uh, quite a, a beautiful state we could think of as a heavenly state to a very difficult state of mind state of struggle, a really, really difficult situation. And just from one mind moment to the next, these changes, in a very real sense, each mind moment is taking birth, a birth, a life, a death, over and over. There's an image that I heard some place uh, that I think is really helpful to understand um, this this flow of causal this causal flow this conditioning flow and to and it it um, is really useful for relating to the idea of rebirth whether you see it in this momentary way or over multiple lifetimes. So if you imagine that you have um, an endless row of candles like the candles behind me here, and you have one, they're all waiting unlit and you have a lit candle, and you take your candle and you light one, and then the one, that one goes out, and then you take the one you just lit and you use it to light the next one, and then it goes out and so on. What's happening there? You're not taking the flame off of that first one and putting that flame onto the next one. But the conditions for a flame to arise are created there. And it's very similar. And there's, there's continuity. There's this conditioning effect. Something is passed along in terms of, of the conditioning flow, the causal flow, but there's no thing <laughs> It's not the same flame. We can see each mind moment in kind of the same way. It's a new flame. It's not the same flame, but it looks a lot like the last one. Can feel like maybe it's the same one sometimes. And it's lawful. You get a flame, not some other thing when you move that candle over and light the next one. It's a lawful process. So when we ask the question, who, what is reborn? We have to be careful that we don't turn this process of conditioning into a thing. As though we took the the flame off of this one and very carefully placed it on the next one. That's not what's happening there. It's a conditioning process. So seeing rebirth in this way, we see our actions condition 
each subsequent mind moment or each subsequent life. And so there's a quality of continuity, a connection between current actions, future birth. But there's no thing, no one who is reborn. And so whether we see this within one lifetime, mind moment to mind moment, or within uh, multiple lifetimes, it really doesn't matter. The key is the understanding that there is this uh, flow of conditioning flow and that our actions bear fruit, bear results. The teacher Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche was once asked, what was reborn? And he said, your neuroses. <laughs> it's kind of like that uh, movie Groundhog Day, some of you have seen, where over a long time, <laughs> there's some purification that happens there. So if we don't work on them, fix, if we don't get them all figured out now, we'll have another chance. <laughs> there's a well-known sutta in, uh, ooh, not even gonna close getting through this talk. <laughs> um, hmm. There's a well-known sutta where the Buddha is instructing his son Rahula and he says, uh, what do you think Rahula, what is a mirror for? And Rahula says, it's for reflection, venerable sir. And the Buddha says, in the same way, Rahula, bodily actions, verbal actions, mental actions should be done with repeated reflection. Whenever you want to do a bodily action, you should reflect on it. This action I want to do, would it lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both? Would it be an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences, painful results? If, on reflection, you know that it would be an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences and painful results, then any action of that sort is absolutely unfit for you to do. But if, on reflection, you know that it would not cause affliction, that it would, not be, that it would be skillful and yield wholesome consequences and wholesome results, then it is fit for you to do. And he recommends that he reflect in the same way before he does it, which is what I read, while he's doing it and afterwards. Because maybe it seems that way, but then you find out, no, not quite. And we could fear that, well, you know, boy, that sounds like a big project and there'll be no spontaneity in my life be second-guessing myself constantly. But actually, we could think of it as um, an aspect of living a conscious life, where we're actually paying attention to our actions, the motivations in the mind of heart, and then the results of them. We take responsibility for it at every, every phase of that. And that living this way with care and attention can uh, gives us this clear set of guidelines, and it can lead to what... Uh, the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness, which I think others have spoken about, where we can feel this sense of um, confidence and inner strength and balance because we know that we, um, that we're living with care and integrity and maybe not perfect, but we're, we're really paying attention in this way. So that one who, who lives this way can uh, go into any group any assembly, and feel blameless. We can get a sense for um, this, the momentary unfolding of, 
of um, this this uh, causal flow of kamma in in different ways in simple ways uh, just in our direct experience um, on retreat many of us uh, at times experience a flood of memories has anyone had this where a flood of memories of from our life comes up really powerfully and uh, sometimes memories of things we don't didn't even remember had happened can be sometimes very um, striking in that way and and uh, shocking even Sometimes they're difficult to be with. I remember being on, uh, I think it was my first long retreat here, a long time ago now, and and I had memories of um, when I was quite young, and uh, had been uh, and of cruelty to insects at that time. Um, I was also kind to them, but but there was a lot of cruelty, and there was so much pain and remorse in my heart because of this. Very very painful for me. And, and so we feel the way these actions leave a mark, a resonance in the heart, in the mind, and, um, and then these feelings that can come as a result of that, those actions. So it, it's an aspect of this unfolding. And it's interesting, in, in my adult life, I, I am famous for um, being kind of the favorite food of biting insects. And um, generally other people are safe if they're around me. <laughs> certain biting insects. I was on a, a trip in India once and uh, with my partner and we wound up in a not not great place. Uh, late at night, had to kind of take lodging where we could find it. And, and there were a lot of um, uh, bed bugs in their room. And, and my partner slept like a baby. And I was viciously eaten by them all night long. <laughs> It was pretty impressive, that difference. Other times, now I'm not saying that this is the result of my actions, but (laughs) I kind of feel like, you know, there's nothing you guys can do to me that will even come close to what I did. So, here you go. (laughs) Help yourself. Other times we have memories of past wholesome actions. And the mind can become gladdened and bright, pleasant, happy feelings can come. And so we see how this can happen uh, very directly. We see how our mind states uh, affect others that we come into contact with. So if our mind is filled with uh, anger or envy or fear, get run one response. If the mind is fill, filled with kindness and care and metta, generosity, appreciation, then the way people respond to us is very, very different. So karma functions as a recipe for happiness in that we're given uh, this this great uh, and very personal responsibility for our lives and for the way our lives um, unfold. And and understanding it, we understand that the choices we make really impact the way our life uh, life goes. And so we begin with our internal world with the motivations behind our actions. And this then has this conditioning effect on the course of our life. And it's really, uh, it's a very empowering understanding. And mindfulness gives us the chance uh, to see what's going on. 
we bring the motivations associated with our intentional actions to light. Mindfulness is a complete game changer in every way. And it's so um, available right now. Is there mindfulness? Is there awareness? If we ask that question, we get to say yes, and it's there, available any moment. You don't have to get ready. Oh, get ready to have our moment of mindfulness. It's coming. I'm going to get ready. Here we go. It's not like that. We just have to remember. We don't do that. But they happen. They happen a lot. How many moments of mindfulness today? I don't care how, what a train wreck your day was, there was still a lot of them. Admit it. (laughs) Notice those. These change, it changes everything. You know, and so sometimes when we look, you know, maybe greed, hatred, delusion, maybe they've got the upper hand and they're driving the bus and they're running the show. But at least we're seeing it. Sometimes their motivations are mixed. But there's the possibility with awareness that we can uh, see what's going on and we're not just running on automatic. We're not just acting out our habituated patterns of reactivity. And whatever actions we choose to do at any point in our lives directly influence the unfolding of things. Present moment, future moments. And all sorts of factors do come into play with the planting of a seed and with the growth of the plant that may may sprout from that seed, where and when it was planted, what the conditions of the weather were like at that time and what they're like afterwards, and if it was cared for, if it was fertilized and watered. This is true for our own lives. We can plant seeds and take care of them, plant them well and care for them. And so how we are in the present and the choices we make now have this... uh, powerful influence on the unfolding of kamma. Goodness in the present tends to draw out the power of past wholesome actions. They bring it to fruition. There's this dynamic. Nothing is is fixed in here in any way. It's so dynamic. So a real connection to an understanding of this is within one life, over multiple lifetimes, if that is something we can uh, connect with in some way. We don't have to. It's, it's profound. It has this tra- profound uh, transforming effect on how we view the world, how we see our lives. And in, in, it's said that uh, karma is our only true property. The only thing we really own our, our actions and the fruits of our actions. And these are some words from uh, meditation master Sayada Upandita, teacher of, of mine and many of ours. 
our concepts of ownership and control over material objects are basically illusory, for all matter is impermanent, subject to decay. Kama is our only reliable possession in the world. Kama has an immediate effect upon the mind, causing joy or misery, depending on whether it is wholesome or unwholesome. It also has long-term consequences. Seeing life in this way gives us the power to choose the conditions under which we want to live. Thus, the view of kama as our true reliable property is called the light of the world. For by it, we can see and evaluate the nature of our choices. Right understanding of kama is like a railroad junction where the train can choose its direction. There's, in, there's this sense in this that uh, the power of the mind, of our intention, is vast, with far-reaching consequences in our lives. And so, like this image of the train that can choose the direction it wants to go, we can choose, in great part, the direction we want to travel and plant the seeds we wish to plant, plant them carefully and care for them. So I offer this for your reflection this evening. We'll sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.